Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Cassie Kostrakov, Technical Director and Chief Decision Scientist at Google Cloud. She describes decision intelligence as an interdisciplinary field concerned with all aspects of decision making and which combines data science with the behavioral sciences. So most recently, she has been focused on developing best practices that can help practitioners make safe, effective use of AI and data. And she has been using her platform to help data scientists develop skills that will help them connect data and AI with their organization's core businesses. And this reminds me, uh, it's very important when you think about data and machine learning to think about training, not just your technical teams, but your entire organization. So one way you can do that is to come to Strata Data in New York this September, where we have trainings, tutorials, and sessions for your entire team, including your non-technical team members, as well as your technologists. So coincidentally, Cassie will be giving a keynote at Strata Data in New York. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Cassie Kostrakov, Chief Decision Scientist at Google Cloud, welcome to the Data Show. Hi, Ben. It's great to be here. So what exactly do you do, Cassie? Because uh, you are one of my favorite uh, speakers at Strata, and I know you speak all over the world, but describe just at a high level for our listeners by way of introduction, uh, what is a decision scientist and what does your uh, kind of a normal day-to-day routine look like? Well, my title says decision scientist, but I see myself actually as both a decision scientist and a data scientist. And I, I see these as uh, two sides of the same coin. And uh, so sometimes I, I wear the one title, sometimes I wear the other. But what decision science is about is it's the social and managerial science aspects of how entities make decisions. And data science is all about those quantitative data aspects to fuel decision making. And so I'm really looking at applied data science from a decision perspective. And and so you're doing this inside Google Cloud. So is this for Google Cloud's internal decision making or is it in support of uh, Google Cloud customers? So what I'm all about is decision intelligence, which you can think of as data science plus plus, data science augmented by the decision sciences, by sciences like uh, psychology, economics, neuroscience, and others. And I'm building out our decision intelligence practice at Google. And so we benefit from that internally, our customers benefit from that, and then also where possible, uh, like with you today, uh, I'm cheerleading those efforts to the world at large. So are you beginning to also interact with educators so in other words uh, are there starting to be courses or or even degree programs in 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 that sort of things that you're doing that's the vision that's the vision for the future but um 
not everything at once, uh, but I am interacting with educators, yes. All right. So one of the reasons I wanted to uh, have you on the podcast is that you gave this uh, great keynote at Strata Data London earlier this year called Making Data Science Useful. So first of all, for the people who weren't at the top, which I recommend, which you can uh, watch online, first, something about the title. But Cassie, isn't data science useful? Well, uh, <laughs> I, would, I would say that uh, data science has a lot of potential to be useful. Uh, but I joked in the keynote that the title underscores three problems in data science, and they are as follows. Problem one, making. Problem two, data. And problem three, useful. To summarize what my talk was about, problem one, making, is all about the makers. Who is it that does data science? What are their roles? What is a data scientist? And something that I spoke about was there's this idea that a data scientist has to be the everything of data. And that was maybe possible in early data science. But more realistically today, because the data science universe is expanding so rapidly, we should start to reframe our expectations and start to see data science as more of a team sport. And this also ties into a lot of the anxiety and frustration that data scientists often report on the job around feeling like it's an impossibly big space that they have to run so fast to keep up with, uh, when really data science is flowing through and permeating every industry, every endeavor. And when you get a field that's so big, eventually you do need to start thinking about specializing. So that's the making side. Then the data side um, is all about this idea that data science is not magical magic. You can't make something out of nothing. And you certainly can't expect to be doing useful data science in a place without data. And data scientists have a role to play in shaping how that uh, data collection process is structured. But really... If you're going to do it at scale, you need to think about data engineering and data collection as separate functions. And if you hire a data scientist just hoping that they're going to pull a rabbit out of a hat for you, what will tend to happen is that that data scientist, so you, you hire someone, you call them your new chief data scientist. You don't have anyone else on that related team. That poor chief data scientist who's trained as a data scientist specifically is going to have to learn how to be a data engineer because data engineering precedes the data science part. And that is not everyone's cup of tea. You know, we, I've just said that data science is such a big discipline. Now you need to go and master another separate second big discipline. And an analogy that I used in the talk for why data engineering, uh, the delivery of the data is hard. I said, well, especially at scale, think about this. If you are going to go and get ingredients to go make some ice cream, say, at home, Going to the grocery store for a tub of ice cream is not that difficult. But what if I need 20 million tubs of ice cream all at once? Don't let them melt. All of a sudden, there's a whole lot to deal with. It becomes a sophisticated discipline in its own right. And so just because you know how to cook with ice cream <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be easy to, to do this, um, to apply it at um, a substantial scale and speed and reliably. And then the last problem that I spoke about, that useful bit, is it's all good and well that you've got the people and you've got the skills and you've got the data science team, you've got the data engineers, you've got the data. It has to be for something. And what you can always get from data is inspiration through analytics. You just look at it and maybe you're inspired, maybe you're not. But a lot of places want something more. 
they want to automate some process with machine learning or AI, or they want to make some big important decision under uncertainty with statistics. I'm a reformed statistician myself, so that has a lot of my heart. But when you start to do more than just look at data and get vague inspiration, you need to think carefully before you begin about what success looks like. What sorts of decisions are you trying to make for the one-offs or for the automated decisions? And then there is a whole lot of homework that someone on the team has to do before the data and the algorithms and the data science all make sense. That someone is a skilled decision maker who knows how to use data information to drive decisions or actions. And those skills aren't really being taught. And so what data science can feel like, and this is a picture that I used in the keynote, is it can feel like the bridge that is sitting in the middle of the ocean, where the starting part of the bridge and the ending part of the bridge are all in the ocean as well. And that middle bit, that's all that fancy mathematics and fancy code and all that cool stuff that you might learn in grad school for data science, it goes nowhere because you don't have those people on the ends who know how to connect it all to something real and make it useful. So a couple of things. One is, yeah, I guess, as I recall, I was among the people here in Silicon Valley when this term data science came about. And actually, there was early manifestations of it were, as you described, uh, someone who did a little bit of uh, data exploration, data visualization, some statistics and ML, but also acquired the data, maybe wrote a simple crawler. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But I think that quickly kind of, uh, that expectation quickly disappeared, as you pointed out, because of uh, when you get to use this more at scale and uh, and you have more and more models, then you need more specialized roles. And then you started hearing about data engineers and then more recently, ML engineers. Sometimes we live in this bubble where we take some of these roles for granted. But when you go to regular companies, they actually are not aware that these roles already are what some of the tech companies have come to realize. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And part of why I wanted to speak about this is about expectation setting. Because what you do see in the companies of the type that you describe who aren't really aware of this stuff is they see the success of data science in more, let's call them sophisticated shops. And they think that the winning ingredient is someone who's resume says data scientist on it. And that's really a big problem, not only for them, but for the data scientists themselves, who comes into this environment where the strength of those expectations is so intense. And it can feel a little bit strange. It can create a lot of cognitive dissonance in the person. They'll wonder, why on earth is this going nowhere when I was hired to save the day? So setting expectations, I think, for the industry, quite important. Yeah, and then the other thing that uh, you said that resonated with me is this notion that actually AI and data science, like any kind of technology, you need to actually kind of educate more of your workforce than your, just your tech people. You know, just like as you described, it, with the advent of big data, you had to kind of make sure that your managers were comfortable making decisions using data or using analytic systems and things like that. So I think the same kind of thing will be required with AI and machine learning. And in fact, in our recent survey, we found the companies who are just beginning to use AI, their main bottlenecks were two. One was uh, just coming up with the right use cases. And then secondly, 
uh, convincing the rest of their organization that uh, AI and machine learning are worth pursuing. Yeah, absolutely. So on the topic of AI specifically, I think that it's even harder, even harder than any technology. You say it's like any technology. I think there's this, there's this extra stumbling block where AI or artificial intelligence action associations, these ideas of personhood, makes people think of robots. And quite frankly, the style in marketing these days to have this giant chrome-plated humanoid on every poster everywhere is, is really not helping things. And so not only is there a lack of education, there is an abundance of, let's call it miseducation, misinformation on this topic. And so the expectations are also not set properly. There is all kinds of magic that happens in sci-fi, which is not what modern AI is about. And so the way that I like to describe this uh, very simply to folks is that traditional programming is about getting tasks done by communicating through direct instructions, whereas AI and machine learning are all about using examples to express yourself. And there's nothing that scary or magical here because we already do this with one another. I can give you a whole bunch of examples. And then from that, you can learn and execute the task, or I can tell you explicitly how to do it. And so the, the promise and the excitement is some tasks are much easier to communicate through examples, through data, than any other way. And where you have the examples and data, uh, there you are able to go and use AI and make progress. And so that ties directly into how do you find the use cases? Well, the way you find the use cases is... You don't start out saying, I really need to apply AI because all my friends are applying AI, which uh, is a bit, of a, it's a bit of a thing. It's a bit of a trend right now. Everyone wants that on their resumes. But um, instead, what you would want to do is if you can actually give explicit instructions and get the task solved really well, please do that. It's much easier to maintain that instruction set in production than to maintain a model that is fitted from patterns in examples. And I, I pr actually prefer to use the term examples to data these days because data is pronounced with this capital D and again has this uh, magic aura. And I want to connect people back to the idea that what you're doing is just communicating with examples. And so if you can just give the instructions, do that. So where do you start then? Well, you need to know what you're giving the or attempting to give the instructions for, which is why you start with the task and the goal and the objective. What do we actually want to do here? Then, if you can solve it without AI, without machine learning, please do that. But you'll find that with a lot of tasks, you can't. You can't fathom what those instructions should be. But you can come up with examples. Or even if you can uh, come up with a rule-based system, it'll be impossibly hard to maintain. <laughs> right. It, it'll either be impossibly hard to maintain, or you will find that you've also set as part of your step one, because this is a really important step one for decision makers, if the decision makers are listening. As part of it, you're not only saying what you're making, what your goal is, but you've got to say what those performance criteria are for launch. So you got to say how you're going to measure that performance and what it means for it to be good enough. And if you can meet that bar the traditional way, that's what you should do. But for many tasks, you are not going to be able to do it that way. But you'll have a nice benchmark. You'll know that with your simple instruction, this is how well you can do on your objective. So let's see how well we can do with the examples. Now, second part there, you need the examples. If you have no examples, if you have no data to communicate your wishes with, you've got a problem. And those examples have better be irrelevant. If you attempt to teach me, oh, I don't know, how to wash the dishes, and you do it by showing me examples of underwater basket weaving, that's not going to be very helpful. 
And that's not the way that you would want to express yourself. So you need to think about that self-expression, that communication with machines as part of the initial ideation. So one of the things uh, that we try to do at both our Strata Data Conference and our AI conference is, is to emphasize this notion of a team sport, which means uh, just don't just send your technologists, also mm -hmm. send your decision makers to these conferences. So what we try Absolutely. to do is provide uh, content for the decision makers, which could be a series of executive briefings or case studies that uh, where they can get inspired. But mostly also we're trying to build community so that you can talk to your peers in other companies that might not be in your industry, or if you're fortunate enough, maybe in the same industry as you, who might be further along than you. For sure. I think that that's a really important effort. And, you know, I'd like us to go a step further here. I think it would be very unfortunate if these attendees, these decision makers who went to these conferences, thought that they were going as tourists, that they're going to check out what these technologists are dealing with. I think that that would be a missed opportunity because the decision maker for AI, that's a role and there is an excellence and there are things that they need to know. They're not tourists. They are a core, yeah. core part of making this useful. And so when you say you, you want to have special content for them, I'm so excited to hear that. What we all need to do is really challenge them to see themselves as getting skills necessary. Yeah, so we actually even have uh, two-day trainings and half day and full day tutorials. So amazing. As you say, it's not just that you're uh, listening passively. Uh, right. If you want to engage, we'll give you the opportunity to engage. Yeah, and and I I would also say that so this this comes back to a talk that I gave at Strata in New York last year. But I mentioned in that one that traditionally we have had decision makers, most decision makers, I mean, excluding kings and popes and such, most decision makers would only be able to influence a small sphere around themselves. And they couldn't really scale up their decision making. And so if they were bad at it, then there would be local consequences to them, but they wouldn't be able to affect the world in a massive negative way quickly. But with technologies at scale, and that's not just AI, all technologies where you can impose your will on the universe very quickly before you say, oops, all such technologies are really long levers and there's a decision maker, a human, at the end of them. And the lever is the entire technology with its technologists and specialists and data and all the rest of it. But that's all being moved around by a human decision maker. And because of how quickly and how much that can affect other people, I think that decision makers have a responsibility to do one of two things. Take their own role really seriously and see that as something that they need to build skills for or to supplement themselves with someone whose job isn't to call the shots, but to house those skills and help translate the decision maker's ideas and interpret between the technologists and the decision maker. But for us to actually see that as a vital role, not a nice to have. We have these trainings, but that the messaging is around how decision makers should take their craft very seriously. Yeah, I also think that actually uh, there's need to basically educate all levels of your organization, right? So uh, one example I like to cite is if you look at something in the industry called robotic process automation, right? Mm -hmm. So RPA, which is making a comeback. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, sure. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that you can't really mandate it from the top down. 
it's most successful is from the bottom up because the people who actually know the tasks, if you educate them as to what the limitations are of the current state of technologies and things like that, they might be able to identify uh, which tasks these uh, technologies are best suited for. So obviously, uh, you need the people at the top to kind of get people excited about it and maybe fund the initiative. But at the end of the day, they can't just command people to deploy these things and things that they aren't uh, best suited to. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that that also brings us back to this idea of analytics as part of machine learning and AI. So you're going to use data and your data set is like a textbook for this system. And you've got many different textbooks to choose from quite often. And not all of them were written by you. Now, if you're going to think about being a good teacher for your machine learning system, you want to give it an appropriate textbook so that it learns the right task and um, it learns it efficiently and it doesn't learn some silly or prejudiced things. Well, if you're a teacher and you've inherited a textbook from somewhere, what you're going to want to do is open that thing up, make sure that it's a textbook you actually want to use. So that's analytics. You open up your data set and you have to think about what you're seeing there, just like a teacher would open that textbook. Is there a super formal way to do this? It's a little inspiration-based, but you've got a responsibility to check. Now, wouldn't it be better if you could have more eyes on that textbook? Wouldn't it be better if your whole organization were able to have a look? You'd catch issues a lot more effectively than if there was just one person who was doing it. And so I'm a big believer in sort of entry-level analytics being done by an entire organization, an entire organization being comfortable uh, with just looking at data, just a little bit, you know, even the first five columns of one row, just have a look, see what's there. Maybe there's something dodgy. If you pin all your hopes on one analyst figuring that out, that's less safe than spreading out that opportunity over your organization. And analytics, to me, is a lot like using the rest of your senses. You don't need a PhD in using your eyes to open a book. You don't need a PhD in listening to the recording of this podcast. Now, that's a file and that's recorded as numbers, but when you uh, look at it or listen to it in a human understandable format, it makes sense. And uh, maybe there's something in there that shouldn't be in there. Maybe there's a persistent clicking or something. And if no one actually listened to it, no one would find that out and deal with it. And if you have your organization treating this as something mystical, then again, you're only going to pin your entire hopes on those very few people who are brave enough to just open the thing and look at it. So democratizing these ideas is also important for that reason. Interesting, because one of the things you talked about in your London keynote uh, also caught my attention, which is around tools. And uh, here, uh, I'm, I'm actually super excited about some new projects coming out of UC Berkeley Rice Lab around program synthesis. So I will link to an article that should be out by the time this uh, podcast airs that I am writing around this topic, which is basically, uh, at the high level, it's basically making the job of a data scientist easier. Because as you pointed out, Cassie, tools come and go, tools become mm -hmm. simpler, tools become simpler. So at some point, it's not really going to be about the tools you learn and master that your employer will care about. So if that's the case, if we get to the point where tools matter less, what kind of skills should our listeners sharpen? Well, uh, first things first, the common sense thinking about information, I think, is really important. We really need to battle this idea 
that data are magical somehow. It's just information recorded, written down, and you should treat it the way you treat any other book. It kind of matters who the author is. Just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's true. It's never all of reality because all of reality is a complicated thing that uh, doesn't fit in your book or data set. And whoever it is who compiled that might not have thought to pay attention to the stuff that you would want to pay attention to. And so seeing that as notes taken, summaries, memories of reality, and understanding the limitations and understanding that they are beautiful, powerful things that you can do with that, especially if it's searchable. And that's what data science allows us to do, is to do something quickly, like ask, how many times does the letter B appear in this book? It's a lot harder to do with the book itself, because you have to upload every letter into your own brain, right, to count them. Whereas you can just, in electronic format, just get that question back really quickly. But maybe the magic is with the speed and way that we can interact with the information, but not in what the information itself is. So that's that, that first part, that common sense and, and having the right expectations and understanding that it is pretty cool to look at notes at scale, but not to um, get overconfident. Then I think that it would go by which of the three excellences within data science resonates more with you. Uh, so for me, the areas in data science break into analytics, and data mining, then machine learning slash AI, and then statistical inference. And you can break them up based on how many decisions you want to make. If you don't know in advance what decisions you want to make, that's analytics. And what you're going to get out of that is facts like this is what this note says. In this data set, the fifth row and the fifth column is five. That is a fact. Now, it may say that the column heading is price, and it may say that that price was $5. That could be a recording error. That might be true. That might not be true just because it's in that data set. doesn't make it true. But what you can record is the fact that this is what I'm seeing it say here. Do you have any facts beyond that data set, beyond what you've seen? No, you don't. And it's at best wishful thinking when you attempt to reach beyond it after you've looked at it and got inspired. But you can get inspiration from it. You don't take it too seriously, but you can get inspiration, and inspiration is, is a powerful thing. And if what you're after is that inspiration, your excellence is speed, you want to see how quickly you can find something potentially interesting in data. On the other hand, if what you want to do is follow up on inspiration and make pre-framed decisions, one or a few of them, carefully, then you're doing statistical inference, then you are going beyond the data. With analytics, you're sticking to the data. With statistics, you're going beyond it. Now, again, there's no magic. There's no mathematics that reveals to you with certainty what is beyond what you know. So how do you leap beyond your bridge's assumptions? And so you're going to have to make assumptions and say, this is what's reasonable in light of my evidence that I have and the assumptions that I'm comfortable making. And then you have to be very, very careful and very precise about what assumptions you choose and how you're going to use them in your decision making. And so there, your excellence is rigor. There's sort of no point in this exercise if you can't be precise. Just call it mere inspiration. Don't take yourself too seriously. And then the last one is that automation game, making many repeated decisions. By decision, I just mean an action or output, like labeling a photograph as cat or no cat. Um, depending on whether it features the animal, that is a decision. And so if you're going to automate many, many decisions, then your excellence there is performance. How well are you going to do at this task in the long run? 
will it be at least 99.9% accurate or whatever your metric is that you want to target. And so there you have to worry about performance and not just performance in your prototype phase, but actually when the system is up and running, is it performing? And so then the complexity of the system is going to influence its long run reliability. So you want to think about that. You want to think about the engineering. So it's a whole other set of skills. And those three excellences, that's what you want to be focusing on in the abstract. Okay. So we talked about these three areas, analytics, statistics, ML slash AI, and kind of developing kind of your skill set and the craft around those things. Right. We also talked about, uh, you know, maybe in the future tools may ma- will matter less and your employers won't care as much about uh, the tools, mm-hmm. you know, coming into a job. But then I think, Cassie, so question for you, though, is a couple of things. One is, uh, I think, to what extent should people learn more about the domains that they're going to apply? So if, in other words, if you're in a financial services, maybe you should learn a little more about the domain. That's one. And then the other thing, too, is to your point earlier in the way you described decision science as crossing disciplines, I think actually uh, there are some areas in the social sciences for which data scientists could draw inspiration and learn from. And one of the things that reinforced this to me recently is this area in explainable AI, where, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out that if you look into that area, there's actually no consensus around <laughs> what metric to use, because basically it's all subjective, right? So it's explainable. So at the end yeah. of the day, though, the, the people that I follow their work, they do human level subject studies, right? So they have to uh, learn techniques from the social sciences in order to pull off their mm-hmm. their studies. Yeah. So anyway, so domain knowledge and uh, learning from other disciplines. So how important are those? Yeah. So first, domain knowledge helps everyone, no matter what it is that you do for your team or organization. I would it would be difficult for you to convince me that there is a role where you would be better served or equally served not knowing anything about what your team does and um, what information is relevant to what your team does. So everyone should have some domain knowledge. But when you think about these larger teams that have a bit more specialization, right, this, this team sport model that you also talked about earlier, on those teams, the decision maker and analyst are the ones who require the most domain knowledge, or if the decision maker is supplementing themselves with a data designer or a data translator, the industry calls these this role by many different names, it sort of hasn't crystallized fully yet. But if you have the decision maker or the decision maker plus their helper together, they need to have a strong domain and context knowledge, because how will you know what's worth automating if you don't know anything about what you're dealing with, right? You're thinking about turning inputs into outputs via a recipe that comes from examples in machine learning and AI, that's what you're doing. So if you know nothing about what inputs are available, what outputs would be relevant, what tasks to automate, like what are you even talking about? How could you possibly say what performance is good enough if you don't know anything about who would use this system downstream? Of course, you need to have that domain knowledge. And an analyst, if their excellence is speed, how are you going to quickly go through your data? How will you minimize your time to potential insight If you don't even know what would potentially be interesting in your data, you're going to snooze past all the interesting stuff. And so you also need to have that domain knowledge. But there's a there's a slight difference there. The analyst is thinking about how to serve the decision maker 
what would be interesting to the business, to the decision maker. The decision maker typically calls the shots, has a look at a variety of things the analyst brings, and some of them will in fact be on the mark, some won't, and the decision maker makes those um, those judgment calls. Now, analysts, I think, of all the data science roles are the ones who are most likely to inherit the decision throne. So at some point, the analyst will get so good in at anticipating what actually is important to the business, what the decision maker will do with what's brought to them, that perhaps that analyst will be able to step into both roles and fill both sets of big shoes. On larger teams, though, that does tend to be uh, separate people. Now, as far as statisticians and machine learning folks go, you need the analytics components to get the most out of both statistics and machine learning. If you're going to think about data engineering, you're going to do that without analytics, without looking at your data, without knowing what's possible here, you're probably not going to do as good of a job. If you don't have a good sense of what ingredients, what inputs are available for your model, and you just try to cook with the whole kitchen sink, you're going to learn very quickly about overfitting. And uh, I hope you learn the right things about it. But (laughs) you would find yourself better served by having an analyst run through your training data and identify potentially useful things for a cleaner, more elegant, faster attempt. The more complex your model, the more likely you are to be kidding yourself and having overfitting, that is. You're just fitting to noise and you've got good performance in your training data. And then when it comes to generalizing beyond it, well, you've learned a bunch of noisy nonsense. You've just memorized your textbook instead of learned the point. And analysts will help you determine what inputs are useful. So if you have an analyst around, you can offload some of those efforts to them. And you can focus as a machine learning engineer on those engineering excellence aspects. But if you don't have that analyst around, and you're not on one of these large mega teams, then that analyst role then unfortunately falls to you as well. So you have to be a hybrid. So when I write blog posts about roles in data science and AI, so I I wrote one where I talked about 10 roles. And I saw that some people felt anxious about this. What am I saying? You can only do machine learning if you have at least 10 employees. No, not at all. These roles don't have to be in separate people, but someone has to do them. And so if you're going to be an army of one, then you yourself need to be aware of all these different things and you yourself need to carry that. And that includes the the analytics piece. All right. Well, uh, Cassie, this has been a great conversation and uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, speaking with me and sharing your uh, vast knowledge and experience with our audience. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Ben. So as a reminder, Cassie Kostrikov will be giving a keynote at Strata Data in New York this coming September. You can follow Cassie on Twitter at Kwa Esida. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.